Inflation isn't new. This man-made disaster has bedeviled civilizations at least since ancient Rome. In order to pay for his extravagant expenses, the first century Roman Emperor Nero debased the Roman currency, the denarius. How did he do it? By replacing silver, which was valuable, with copper, which was not. And that was just the beginning. Rome's corrupt governments debased the coinage on a regular basis. By the fourth century, the price of wheat was two million times higher than it had been in the mid-second century. By the fifth century, Rome was finished, overrun not by barbarians, but by inflation. In the 16th century, English King Henry VIII did essentially the same thing with England's coinage to pay for his wars, divorces, and debaucheries. In what became known as the Great Debasement, food prices soared. Ultimately, Henry left it to his daughter, Queen Elizabeth I, to clean things up by issuing new high-quality coinage, setting the stage for the emergence of England as a great power. The Continental Congress of the American Revolution tried to print its way out of its money problems by paying soldiers with paper money. The first U.S. currency, the Continental Dollar, was so overprinted that it became confetti, collapsing into hyperinflationary oblivion. Alexander Hamilton, the first Treasury Secretary, saved the day by linking the U.S. dollar to gold. Figures like Elizabeth I and Alexander Hamilton are rare. These stories usually end up badly. In the 1920s, rampant money printing by the Weimar Republic in Germany led to hyperinflation, economic collapse, and ultimately the rise of Adolf Hitler. Argentina, once the most prosperous country in South America, has never really recovered from its wild money printing in the 1950s. And Zimbabwe, now one of Africa's poorest and most corrupt nations, is infamous for its $100 trillion bill. Look for the source of a society's collapse, and you'll usually find the I-word. So what exactly is inflation? There are two types, non-monetary and monetary. When a hurricane slams the Gulf of Mexico, interrupting fuel production, the price of gasoline rises. This is non-monetary inflation. The rise of price is due to some external event. Over time, the market recovers and prices normalize. Monetary inflation is something entirely different. It's the distortion of prices that occurs when money loses value. It's that feeling that something isn't right. Why is my weekly grocery bill, which used to be $100, now $200? Because your money is losing value. It's not that bananas have suddenly become more valuable. It's that your money has become less valuable. This can happen rapidly, as we've seen since 2021, or slowly over time. For example, in 1970, a can of Coke cost a dime, a Big Mac, 65 cents. 50 years later, a Big Mac is five bucks, and you'd be lucky to get a soda out of a vending machine for $2. Obviously, these products haven't changed. It's the dollar that's worth far less. This slow motion devaluation of the dollar is why young people today can barely make rent when years ago, their parents, who made far fewer dollars, could buy a house. Their dollars were worth much more. If you feel cheated by that, I don't blame you. You have been. So where should your anger be directed? You can start with our 37th president, Richard Nixon. The worst thing he did was not Watergate. It was taking us off the gold standard in 1971, which Alexander Hamilton had put in place two centuries prior. This allowed the federal government to print dollars more or less at will. 
Had the U.S. dollar stayed connected to the gold standard, it's estimated that today's economy would be at least 50% larger than it is. In a universe without inflation, you could buy that house. So what is the dollar's value linked to now, if not gold? Nothing more than faith. The faith that the money you have today will be worth the same tomorrow, next year, and the year after. But it becomes harder and harder to maintain that faith as the U.S. government prints trillions of dollars to pay for its outrageous spending. The most devastating effect of inflation is its impact on social trust. Money, after all, was invented to enable trade between strangers by providing a mutually agreed-upon unit of value. It is a facilitator of trust. Without that trust, trade, social relationships, and life as we know it ultimately unravel. So are we doomed to this fate? No, just like England wasn't and America wasn't at its founding. We must once again link the dollar to a stable anchor, gold, or some other trustworthy standard. The time to start that debate is now, or we will go the way of Rome, and you can bet your bottom denarius on it. I'm Steve Forbes, co-author of Inflation, What It Is, Why It's Bad, and How to Fix It for Prager University. Thank you for watching this video. To keep PragerU videos free, please consider making a tax-deductible donation. Against all odds, the Americans won their War of Independence. But their success brought a new challenge, no less daunting. What sort of government should they choose for themselves? How could they ensure that the tyranny of the English king, George III, would not be replaced by a homegrown tyranny? One possibility was to establish an American monarchy with a better king. That was tempting for some, especially because they had a superb person for the job, General George Washington. To his legion of admirers, the fact that he did not want to be king made him an even more attractive candidate. The other possibility was to establish a republic, a government of and by the people and their representatives. But this solution came with a big problem. Historically, republics like those in ancient Greece and Rome had always failed. And when they failed, they were usually replaced by the very worst, most oppressive forms of tyranny. Might there be a way to make republicanism work and last? To structure a constitution that would protect the new American republic from the social and political pathologies that had destroyed republics throughout history? America's founding fathers, men like Washington, Thomas Jefferson, Benjamin Franklin, John Adams, Alexander Hamilton, and James Madison believed they had answers. They had risked everything when they declared their independence from England. They were willing to risk everything again to create a new, different, and better type of republic. The key, they all agreed, was to establish structural limits on power, the power of anyone and any institution exercising governmental authority. In the summer of 1787, in one of the most creative acts in human history, these men, minus Jefferson and Adams, who were serving the country abroad, fashioned a national government divided into three separate parts or branches, the legislative, Congress, the executive, the president, and the judicial, the courts. Congress would make the laws, the executive would execute the laws, and the courts would settle disputes arising under the Constitution and laws of the United States. Dividing power would prevent power being concentrated in any one branch, the concept of checks and balances. 
Moreover, the central government would be limited to the powers specifically delegated to it, having no powers beyond those enumerated. Where then would most of the powers of government reside? The answer was with the states. This was not, as some wrongly suppose, done to protect slavery. Rather, it was done out of the common-sense belief that those public officials nearer to the people would naturally be more responsive and accountable to the people. Just to make sure nobody missed the point, after attaching a Bill of Rights to the Constitution, the Founders enshrined this principle in the Tenth Amendment. The powers not delegated to the United States by the Constitution, nor prohibited by it to the states, are reserved to the states respectively, or to the people. In short, whatever the Constitution does not specifically delegate to the national government belongs to the states and the people. But the power of the states was also limited by constitutional prohibitions in certain areas, either because power in those areas had been delegated exclusively to the national government, such as the power to enter into treaties with other nations, or because the framers did not want government at any level to have certain powers, such as the power to confer titles of nobility, something incompatible with republicanism. Still, as much care as the framers took to constrain government power, federal and state, they knew their efforts would fail unless one more component was present. Citizens imbued with the spirit of republicanism. People who understood the principles of their constitution, who valued self-government, and who would be willing to do the work necessary for its maintenance. Citizens who would not yield to demagogues who promised prosperity, security, or anything else at the price of liberty. James Madison had this in mind when he said that only a well-instructed people could be permanently a free people. By a well-instructed people, Madison meant above all a people well-educated about our constitutional liberties and responsibilities. When at the conclusion of the Constitutional Convention, a woman asked Benjamin Franklin what kind of government he and the others had proposed for the nation, he famously responded, A republic, madam, if you can keep it. The wise old Philadelphia polymath had history in mind in giving that answer. He knew that he and his colleagues at the convention had supplied only the mechanics of what was needed for a republic to long endure. The rest could only be supplied by we the people understanding and fulfilling our duties as citizens. That's why studying the Constitution is essential. How can we fulfill our duties as citizens if we don't understand the document on which that citizenship is based? I'm Robert George, Professor of Jurisprudence and Director of the James Madison Program at Princeton University for Prager University. One day I want to own my own business, be my own boss. Probably nothing embodies the essence of the American dream more than that thought. And what American hasn't had it? Henry Ford had it. Oprah Winfrey had it. Steve Jobs had it. So did the owner of your favorite food truck. So have countless others. Many of those people came to the U.S. because they believed their best chance to achieve it was here in America. Many have been rewarded for their boldness. Many have not. Starting a business, as everyone knows, is fraught with obstacles. But still, countless Americans risk it, risking everything to make it happen. Why? 
Of course, we already know the answer. Because owning your own business represents freedom. You may miss some of your kids' soccer games, need to take out a second mortgage, and work 100-hour weeks, but ultimately, you are in charge of your own destiny. You are independent. You are free. And that's exactly the reason big government despises small business. Big government is all about control. And small business is very hard to control. Big business is much easier to manage. Why? Because there aren't that many of them. But there are a lot of small businesses, nail salons, car repair shops, local gyms, restaurants. In fact, there are more than 30 million small businesses in America. These businesses employ approximately half the workforce and account for around half of the entire U.S. GDP. Their endless variety, from pest control to dry cleaners to family farms, is the very fabric of American commerce. Any product or service you can think of is covered by a small business somewhere. Small businesses are why America became the richest nation in the world. Let's not forget that every successful big business started out as a small business. There's no magic to it, really. Give individuals the chance to be free and creative, and they will be. Then came March 2020, and this engine of economic growth came to a sudden and shocking halt. It was the single greatest disaster in the history of American small business. For the first time ever, the government shut down the economy. Well, they shut down a part of it, primarily the small business part. The big business part, Amazon, the chain groceries, the big box stores and drug stores, were allowed to remain open. Money that normally would have gone to small business went instead to big business. Had this been limited to a couple of weeks as first promised, it might have been okay. But it went on for months and months. Yes, government loans helped some small businesses to stay open, but it was the government that closed them down to begin with. And those small relief funds weren't nearly enough for many. To cite one dismal statistic, one in six restaurants nationwide closed forever. That's more than 100,000 across the country. And when things did return to something approaching normal, the small businesses that did survive had trouble finding people willing to work. It made more sense for many workers to stay home and collect money from the government. It also made sense for parents not to rush back to work for fear the government would lock down schools again. And when workers did return to work, struggling small businesses had to compete with the thriving big businesses on wages and benefits, a competition they were sure to lose. The rich got richer, the government got more power, and small business got screwed. This is bad for America. It's bad because more than any single entity, small business is America. Having the ability to choose how you want to make a living is an important part of a free market and a free society. And small businesses embody that freedom. America will not look or feel like the America we have known without a robust small business sector. It will be a far duller, more homogenous, less friendly, and less dynamic place. The desire that one day I want to own my own business, be my own boss, still burns in the hearts of many Americans. 
Let's not let big government douse that flame. It's much better to make government smaller and let the individual succeed. That's the pathway to a more innovative, more prosperous, more American future. The only pathway. I'm Carol Roth, author of The War on Small Business for Prager University. At what age is it appropriate for grammar school teachers to discuss issues like sex and gender with their students? Should it be done with kids as young as pre-K, second grade, fifth? Even a decade ago, the most common answer would have been never. These are simply not appropriate subjects for young children. If for some reason they did have to be raised, it would be the parents' job, not the teachers. Today, it's much different. Now these are pressing questions and very much on the minds of parents. They are part of what the media calls the culture war. But parents didn't start this war. The war has been waged on us. Until recently, we had no idea it was even happening. Now it's hand-to-hand combat, school boards versus mom and dad. It's not clear who's winning. Starting in September 2022, New Jersey first graders will learn about gender identity under new sex education guidelines. A sample lesson plan reads as follows. You might feel like you're a boy, even if you have body parts, as some people might tell you are girl parts. You might feel like you're a girl, even if you have body parts, as some people might tell you are boy parts. And you might not feel like you're a boy or a girl, but you're a little bit of both. No matter how you feel, you're perfectly normal. Yes, Junior might be struggling with his fractions, but never fear. He's rock solid on his preferred pronouns. The Evanston-Skokie School District 65 in Illinois has adopted a new LGBTQ plus Equity Week curriculum that will teach kids in pre-K and kindergarten about people who have more than one gender or no gender at all. Kids in first grade can pick their own pronouns, including Z, Zer, and Tree, and are told they can switch pronouns anytime they wish. All feelings are respected all the time. Third graders, generally around eight years old, are also encouraged to overcome their prejudice that gender is binary. Parents have mounted a counterattack. Our deep concern that our children are being prematurely sexualized and thus confused about their identity is manifest in Florida's Parental Rights and Education Act. Its text plainly states that discussion of sexual orientation is out of bounds. This piece of legislation, which now has counterparts in several other states, has, in turn, been mocked by progressives. Setting aside the appropriateness of teaching small children that their gender is malleable or that kids designating tree as their preferred pronoun is okay, progressives say the Florida law is unnecessary. Why? Because these progressives claim these lessons aren't actually taught. They are a figment of the parents' imagination. Some figment. But if this is all just a fever dream on the right, then opponents of these bills are caught in their own circular logic. If these topics aren't taught in schools, then why is the bill controversial? Florida would be legislating against nothing. But that's not what's happening. Recently, in the Glendale Unified School District in California, parents confronted their school board after they learned that a third-grade teacher had shown their kids videos for Gay Pride Month that included nudity and discussions of sexual arousal. A decade ago, this teacher would have been chased out of town with pitchforks, metaphorically speaking. Today, it's controversial. The purpose of the Florida law is to stop this sort of education. Activists and their media allies say the Florida bill stigmatizes kids who are not heterosexual or who have gay parents. 
Never mind that being straight is also a sexual orientation. The point is, any classroom discussion about sex and gender identity should be off the table. It's not surprising parents want to protect their small children from inappropriate lessons that have nothing to do with what school is supposed to be about. You know, quaint notions like reading, writing, and arithmetic. What's surprising is that it's even an issue at all. Why is this madness, and what is it, if not madness, even happening? And who's behind it? It's not like there was a crying demand from seven-year-old boys to identify themselves as a girl or as a boy and a girl. These questions are not easy to answer. The sudden eruption of madness is never easily explained. But this much is not in doubt. You're not crazy. They're crazy. You're not crazy to be worried about what your children are learning in school. They're crazy for wanting your children to ponder their sexual identity in second grade. You didn't start this culture war. They did. But we have to win it, or we will all suffer the consequences. I say we because I am one of you. I moved from New York, where I had lived my entire life, to Florida to protect my children. The progressive left is using sexual identity issues as a bulldozer. They've run over the educational establishment, and they're coming for your house. Parents, man the barricades. I'm Carol Markowitz, columnist for the New York Post for Prager University. There is no such thing as a free lunch. That's basically all you need to know about economics, or for that matter, about life. Everything comes with a price, and there are no perfect solutions, only trade-offs. If you think you're getting something for free, you're fooling yourself. One way or another, somebody has to pay for it, and that somebody usually includes you. This bit of priceless wisdom was popularized in the 1970s by University of Chicago economist Milton Friedman. And it made him, along with his many other penetrating insights, the most influential economist of his time. Born in Brooklyn in 1912, the son of two poor Jewish immigrants from what is now Ukraine, Friedman never took the opportunities America offered him for granted. He devoted his life to making the case for free enterprise. No one has ever made it more persuasively. His scholarly work centered on monetary theory, the idea that the growth or contraction of the money supply has a profound impact on a nation's economy. The Great Depression of the 1930s, which had caused so much suffering and which Friedman had lived through personally, made his case. Friedman showed that the Depression was not a failure of an out-of-control free market, but an out-of-control federal reserve, the Fed, the central bank of the United States. Instead of keeping the money supply stable in a recession, the Fed choked it off. This started a series of bank runs, people literally running to get their money out of their bank before their bank ran out of money. But that, according to Friedman, was not the Fed's biggest mistake. The biggest mistake was that the Fed existed at all. No Fed, Friedman believed, no Great Depression. The free market would have figured things out on its own, just as it had in previous economic upheavals. But the Fed's members had no confidence in the market. Their confidence was in their own ability to fine-tune America's incredibly complex economy. This confidence was misplaced. The Fed and the president who dominated the decade, Franklin Roosevelt, made one bad decision after another and the depression dragged on. Friedman saw another grave mistake being done in the early 1970s. He made the bold prediction that the Fed's efforts to print money to keep the country out of a recession would lead to something worse, stagflation, 
the combination of high inflation and high unemployment. And that's exactly what happened. Many economists who had previously dismissed Friedman now acknowledged that he was right. In 1976, he received the Nobel Prize in Economics, yet another vindication of his work. But as perceptive as his economic theories were, his special gift was his ability to explain his theories to the public and his willingness, indeed eagerness, to do so. He wrote best-selling books and had a column in Newsweek for 18 years. In 1980, he hosted the popular 10-part TV series Free to Choose for PBS. The theme of the show was pure Friedman. While others trusted the government to make good decisions, Friedman trusted people and the market. Excessive government control, regulation and taxation, he persuasively argued, distorted incentives and put money in the hands of politicians and bureaucrats who had not earned it and suffered no consequences if their policies failed. There were other ways government intervention distorted the free market, Friedman said. Protectionism, for example, increased prices for consumers and discouraged innovation. Overregulation allowed big business, with its lawyers and lobbyists, to drive out small competitors. Minimum wage laws led to fewer jobs for those who needed them most. It all followed from Friedman's basic idea that millions of people working for their own purposes could make better decisions than a bunch of unelected bureaucrats who had no stake in the outcome. But Friedman didn't just complain about the problem. He had solutions ready when and where they were needed. When communism collapsed in Eastern Europe in the late 1980s, economists in places like Estonia, Poland and Czechia, who had read Friedman in secret, sometimes by candlelight, now embraced his slow-tax, light-regulation model to great effect. And when my own country, Sweden, faced a welfare state-induced crisis in the early 1990s, it was Friedman's ideas that guided the Swedish reformers. They opened up markets, tightened social security benefits, and in 1992, Sweden implemented Friedman's idea about a national school voucher system. Friedman's influence spanned the globe. Israel, Chile, New Zealand, the UK, and of course the United States put his ideas into practice. They worked. The Economist magazine, appropriately and cleverly titled its obituary of the great economist in 2006, How Milton Freed Man. As his fame spread, Friedman always held fast to his guiding principle, that freedom is not the rule, but the exception. The typical state of mankind, he wrote, is tyranny, servitude, and misery. So the price of liberty is eternal vigilance and knowing Milton Friedman. I'm Joan Norberg, Senior Fellow at the Cato Institute for Prager University. Thank you for watching this video. To keep PragerU videos free, please consider making a tax-deductible donation. I was stuck in a job that I couldn't stand. I wanted out in the worst way. Not because I wasn't making enough money, I was. Not because I hated my boss, I didn't. But because I wasn't doing what I was meant to do. And I could no longer convince myself otherwise. Every day, every week, I experienced the slow death of boredom, counting down the clock to Friday, dreading Monday. It was no way to live. My story is hardly unique. It may even describe you. And if you haven't yet started your work life, it might describe what you fear most. 
but I have some good news, a way for you to take control of your future. I know this idea works because I used it for my own career and I've helped countless people use it for theirs. The idea is called the proximity principle. It's deceptively simple. In order to do what you want to do, you have to be around the people who are doing it and in the places where it is happening. That's the proximity principle. So how can you put the proximity principle into practice? The first step is to seek out five types of people. Each one has an important role to play in helping you move forward toward your goal, your dream job. One, the professors. I don't mean actual professors, but people who know their stuff. They are scholars of your desired field. They love to teach, and they are willing to teach you. Two, the professionals. These are the people who've made it. There's a reason for that. Read their biographies and anything they've written. Watch them on YouTube. Emulate them. They're your model, what you aspire to. Three, the mentors. Individuals who care about you and want to coach you. Mentors are not the same as professors. These are people who will take you under their wing, who will tell you hard truths you need to hear. They will offer guidance and accountability. Whether they say you're doing great or failing badly, you know they mean it. Four, your peers. They, like you, are trying to make it. They, like you, are placing themselves in the right places around the right people. Peers will challenge you to realize your potential. They will push you and you them. This is healthy competition and it's good. Five, the producers. They are similar to the professionals, but the producers are builders first. They take risks, start companies, create jobs. More than anything, they produce opportunities. One of them may be for you. Okay, that's a lot. You're not going to gather this team overnight. It will take weeks or months or even years. And this is just the first part of the proximity principle. I said it was simple. I didn't say it was easy. So let's move to the second part of the proximity principle, where you need to be. One, start where you are. You don't have to drop everything and move to the big city right away, or maybe ever. Everything you need to begin is more than likely in your current zip code. You just have to look for it. Seek every opportunity to track down the people you need to meet. They may be the people you already know, or people the people you know know. You get the point. Two, you need a place to learn. Take the classes, get the certifications, apply for the apprenticeships or internships that will get you closer to the job you want. Three, you need a place to practice, a place to convert your education into execution, a place to test yourself before you step out on stage. This is where you'll hone your craft. There's very little risk involved at this point, but there's also no substitute, no shortcut for spending the hours necessary to develop your skills. Four, you need a place to perform, a place where you can gain real-life experience doing the work. Practice is one thing, but you need to be able to perform under pressure. For a comedian, this could be an open mic night. For a salesperson, a trade show. Whatever job you're pursuing, there comes a point when you simply have to do it. 
Five, you need a place to grow, a place where you can get better at what you do and move forward in your career. Whether it's a city, a suburb, a mountain, or a farm, it must be a place with opportunity for advancement in your chosen field. Five types of people, five places you need to be. That's the proximity principle. The right people plus the right places leads to the right opportunities. One relationship leads to three more, an internship turns into a full-time job. Closed doors open. Suddenly, you find yourself getting lucky, but it wasn't luck, it was design, your design. I'm Ken Coleman, host of The Ken Coleman Show and author of The Proximity Principle for Prager University. Thank you for watching this video. To keep PragerU videos free, please consider making a tax-deductible donation.